gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Go to thedispatch.com to check out all of our wares, including um, all the standalone uh, web-only pieces that are open and free to everybody. Um, and maybe check out our newsletters and sign up to become a paid member. Uh, you'd be, I think you'd be supporting a really great cause, but that's not the reason to do it. That's just the reason to feel good about doing it. We got all sorts of, uh, you know, great stuff. We try really hard not to waste your time. I mean, the G file accepted because you know, it's an acquired taste. But um, we have, you know, we, there are no ads on there. There's no clickbait. There are no autoplay videos. None of that kind of stuff. And I mean, look at it this way: if I started my own personal Substack, some of you people who haven't subscribed to the Dispatch yet might subscribe to that. Yeah, you might not. That's fine. Some of you who haven't subscribed to the Dispatch yet might subscribe to David French if he started his own personal newsletter. But instead, you can get mine and David's and Tom Jocelyn's and Sarah's and and um, and the Morning Dispatch, which I do think is probably the best sort of news digest and news analysis daily piece uh, that is out there. I think it's I like the guys at Axios a lot. I like what we do better. Um, and uh, so there's a lot of reasons to do it. And um, it would also make me happy. So if you can, that would be wonderful. Um, I'm doing this on another morning. I am very tired and I'm pretty cranky. Um, lots of weird hate mail for weird reasons and nasty tweets for weird reasons. I've also been getting um, some disturbing phone calls for various reasons, which we don't need to get into because I don't want to impart to encourage people. Um, the lamest, though, is this: these... Um, calls that come over on my cell that tell me they're calling from my old landline, which is kind of creepy and kind of funny because we cut our landline like three months ago. So clearly it's like this, you know, some computer program thing that does it. And it's like a, apparently it's like a pay prank service. So I get these calls from people saying that they're from, you know, they're outside my door trying to drop off a package or deliver pizza and this kind of thing, and then they want to bait you. It's really good baiting at first if you don't know what it is. So I probably fell for it the first time, but like it, it comes pretty regularly now. From I, 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 all this stuff started around the time I started criticizing Matt Gates. So I've been suspecting it was one of those kind of you know Roger Stone world dumb uh, things, but it's 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 been interesting and kind of funny. And um, but the real reason I'm in a foul mood is that Zoe, the dingo, the white trash swamp dog um, that has stolen so much of my heart. We took her to get her teeth cleaned because her breath, um, you know, her breath could, you know, forget chasing squirrels. She could knock a squirrel um, out of a tree at 100 yards with that breath. It was getting really bad. And turns out, as we suspected, she had. Um, a tooth infection or actually two teeth were infected and some problems with her gums and another tooth was cracked. And so we ended up having to have, she ended up having to have three teeth removed yesterday. And, um, look, you know, no one has to tell me that I over anthropomorphize my dogs. I mean, uh, I'm the one who writes, I know this is spoiler alert, Tw you know, Pippa doesn't do it. Uh, every morning I send out a tweet from Pippa. Um, telling everybody how much she loves them. Um, I, I, I understand that I'm a little dog obsessed and I don't apologize for it. Um, but you don't need to tell me either because you're not telling me something I don't know. Um, in fact, if I took out all of the criticisms that I get from the, from people of good faith and bad that were just telling me things I already knew about myself, um, it would reduce the total amount of criticism I get by about 45%. But anyway, um, so I know I'm probably reading too much into it, but you know, she really did not want to go to the vet, which is normal. I know. And she's so, but she so very rarely acts like she's vulnerable or scared. And she was really scared to go in there. And I had to like trick her that I was going with her and then, you know, say, see ya at the door. And I felt really bad about it all day. And then I went to go pick her up. And 
she was so groggy from the anesthesia that she was falling down and um but her attitude and the way that she wouldn't make eye contact with me um you know she she would go with me to the car but she wouldn't make eye contact with me it felt sort of like yeah i'm going to come back to the house with you because you know that's where i keep all my stuff but you know this thing we used to have is over and um I know it's not really the case, but she's still acting like it's day. It's fairly typical after this kind of thing, um, according to the vets and the paperwork and whatever, uh, for dogs to act, you know, to be depressed for a day or two. And it's just very sad to see. And it's a little wor more worrisome with Zoe, because for those of you who don't remember, um, Zoe used to be a pretty aggressive dog with other dogs. And it started, we think, when she had Parvo as a puppy. and you know, her, and she's kind of just internalized this when I'm hurt, when I'm sick, I have to put on a brave face and be, you know, and, 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 and go on offense first. And, um, we've mostly gotten that out of her, but we're worried about her being sick, you know, or if not feeling good and what that might mean with when she interacts with other dogs so far, no problem or anything like that, but, um, it's just all very depressing. And, um, um, and it's a, kind of crummy way to start the day never mind start a podcast which was probably a mistake for me to talk about this in the first place so anyway um when i was talking with this greek chorus i have here um uh about what i should talk about this is about 12 minutes ago um i was informed that ben shapiro got wood and um uh you know i, I like ben i got my disagreements with him you know these days but you know I got my disagreements with everybody, so that's fine. Um, but uh, the buying wood at Home Depot to own the libs thing was 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 interesting. So I watched the video right before, and and um, I don't know it it it's it's weird. I don't. I'd have to watch the fuller video to see if it's a sardonic sort of wry kind of thing, or if it's just it just the tone misfires. But the way he bought a single plank of wood with a shopping bag covering one end of it like a like a thimble or a or a bad condom in a on a civilization that is populated by planks of wood. Um just weird. And it kind of feels a little bit like that episode of The Simpsons where the um the real hero of the space shuttle mission was the inanimate carbon rod. Um, but I don't know. I just, it was a weird way to start, you know, like normally when I ask these guys what I should talk about, you know, I get, you know, stuff about punditry and politics or, you know, history or something I wrote about. Instead, the first suggestion was talk about how Shapiro has wood. And I was just like, okay, I'm going to need more information. So where to actually begin? All right. So I actually liked my column, my syndicated column today. It's up at the dispatch. Um, I very rarely plug my syndicated columns. It's not that I, I don't like them. Um, obviously I wouldn't be in this business if I didn't stand behind what I've been doing <laughs> for a living for 20 plus years. Um, but there's just something about plugging the syndicated column that always feels kind of weird to me. Um, but I, well, I guess one of the reasons why I like it is because it was a little different than normal and had a bit more of a G file-ish flavor. And I also, while I was desperately struggling to come up with a column topic, I kind of just stumbled into it and I like it. Now, now listeners of this podcast, never mind people read my book or they read the G file for years, know that one of my favorite expressions is um, you know, uh poison is determined by the dose. Um, there are a bunch of different ways to say it. It comes from this, you know, this this swiss sort of alchemist scientist you know guy who basically created the science of toxicology and the basic principle is just simply kind of obvious to most people which is that the um that it all everything depends on how much right like um a little alcohol is fine maybe even healthy um, too much alcohol and you sound like you're about to hug Mike Gallagher at the end of a podcast, you know, I mean, everything, you know, depends on the proportions 
And the reason why, one of the reasons why I talk about this a lot is that I usually use it in the context of nationalism. Um, I'm one of these people who believes that a little nationalism is a very good thing. Um, I remember years ago, I gave a little spiel, which you guys have probably heard me say before about uh, Thanksgiving, about one of the reasons why I love Thanksgiving is that it's our most um, nationalistic holiday, in a sense. Um, Fourth of July is obviously the most patriotic holiday. But Thanksgiving, um, first of all, it celebrates an event that predates the founding of the United States by more than a century. It um, celebrates this idea of our connection to the earth and to the soil and to this place. Um, and it is an offering of gratitude to God for the wonders of being able to be here in this place and in this country. And it's very sort of, you know, mystic chords of memory kind of holiday, you know, 4th of July is wonderful because we're, we're literally celebrating a text, um, which is very American, but Thanksgiving is more about the things that you're supposed to be grateful for in your personal life. Your, you know, your, your family, your friends, um, being here and not someplace else and all that. Anyway, so I did a post at the corner, you know, natural reviews blog years ago about this. And I remember some guys from, uh, Cato, attacking me saying here's what a little bit of nationalism gets you and showing pictures of body bags entering um you know a cargo plane or something with american flags draped over them and i've always found that it's always stuck i mean of all the things people have criticized me for i always thought taking a you know nice little ode to thanksgiving as um proof of being a bloodthirsty you know warmongering nationalist to be very strange um but my point I still stand by is that a little nationalism is great. A little nationalism is Thanksgiving, right? A little nationalism is the Roger Scruton argument for nationalism. It gives you, it binds nationalism in that, in this sense, binds you to a sense of place, to a history, to a sense of gratitude for the people who came before you to, um, uh, you know, valuing what is yours um, over what is not. And it binds strangers together in a community in a way that they have something that they all share. And in, in moderation, it's good, but too much of it is not good. And way too much of it is deadly. And so the analogy I always use is between, um, is like salt. You know, uh, if you know anything about cooking, a pinch of salt is great, uh, is necessary to, for, all, most meals, you know, I mean, just, uh, it brings out the flavors. It actually harmonizes the flavors at the same times. It makes the dish brighter, pulls it all together. Um, too much salt and it overpowers everything and ruins the meal and way too much salt is again, literally toxic. It's deadly. It's poisonous. And, um, anyway, I, I checked off all this stuff in the column as quickly as I could. And, um, the reason I bring it up, and this actually relates to also what I wrote about in the Wednesday G file, is that, you know, the inability to make distinctions between similar things um, or, or superficially similar things or even very similar things um, is being lost all over the place. The, the, the essence of serious thinking, particularly philosophical thinking, but also just common sense mature grown-up thinking is the ability to make distinctions between things is to understand that two things or three things or a hundred things may seem alike they may have similarities but there are also important differences and you know the it's you know this point when you're talking about two different things is really really you know obvious uh a you know two mushrooms that look alike but may in fact not be the same thing could be the difference between life and death the difference between a um um you know a taser and a gun difference between life and death the difference between the brake pedal and the gas pedal in a car difference between can be the difference between life and death um and we we sort of understand these things um even if in our daily lives but not necessarily in our politics and then the other distinction that really matters is the one I was talking about before, about differences of degree ending up being differences in kind. And, you know, the thing that drives me crazy about the way we talk 
And when I say we, I don't mean you, dear listener. Um, and I, I hope I don't mean me, even if it would describe me at one point in my life. I've been trying very hard to model better behavior and all of my public eggheadery. But what I'm talking about is, you know, it's, it's Tucker Carlson and it's Rachel Maddow and it's Nicole Wallace and it's, um, you know, Sean Hannity. And it's also, you know, often people like, I don't know, Cornell West, although lately he did something that impressed me. He pushed back on um, Howard University canceling its classics program, which I think is admirable of him to do. Um, but you get the point. You know, it's, it's uh, Gretchen, whatever her face is, the teenager climate doomsayer. Um, it's often Joe Biden. Anyway, it's, it's our politicians, you know, and it's our pundits, and it's our, a, a big chunk of our public intellectuals um, deliberately erase important distinctions so that they can connect dots that cannot be con be connected. Um, they and you know, it, and it's not just a matter of exaggeration. Um, you know, when you have racial activists talking about um, how it's open season on black people in America for the police. Um, even you see people talking about how things are, you know, how it's, there's a policy of genocide against black people in the United States. Um, this is nonsense. I mean, this is literally nonsense. This doesn't, and I'm not, my point here is not to say that, that, uh, police abuse isn't a real problem that, you know, we aren't learning new things about body cameras. They are showing us that the, you know, the, these problems are, exist to a greater extent than we thought. That's all fine. Reasonable people can have serious, passionate, you know, arguments about all of that. But if you actually take words seriously, you know, saying that we have genocide in this country today of black people is crazy. It's nonsense. Um, if it were open season on black people for the police, Derek Chauvin wouldn't be going to jail. Um, the, you know, the Columbus cop who shot that woman or that teenage girl. And I, from what I can tell from the video, uh, justifiably, uh, he wouldn't have stopped at the one with a knife. He would have kept shooting if it was open season, right? Because open season taken again, literally means that it is now legal to hunt something. You have the color of law on your side to hunt something. And it is just simply not open season on black men or black people in this country. And making that point, doesn't mean I am insensitive to legitimate concerns. It is that I'm saying that you've lost any ability to make meaningful distinctions. Same thing with like climate change. Look, I mean, we just had this stupid climate summit thing. Um, I think, and I get grief about this all the time. I get whatever I say about climate change, you're going to get grief from somebody because either you're not going far enough or you're going too far. Um, I think climate change is real. I'm persuaded by that. Um, I am not persuaded that it is necessarily um, the catastrophe that people are turning it into, but I also think that we should do something about it. I don't like the economic policies that people propose to do stuff about it. I would rather come up with other things, but that's a conversation for another day. My point is, is that when you have Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, um, and virtually everybody on MSNBC and all the other usual suspects saying that climate change is a extinction level event or an existential level event, which is just a synonym for an extinction level event. They're peddling nonsense, you know? And so some of this, again, some of this has to do with just exaggeration of politics. Some of this has to do with the well-learned um, practice of, of creating a crisis to give the public, to, to, to nudge the public towards a permission structure to enact your entire um, uh, political agenda. I mean, everyone should, should have read Crisis and Leviathan by now, or at least heard me rant about it before, so I don't need to really revisit all that. But I think there's just something deeper here is that we have lost in our elite circles, in our elite discourse, in our elite rhetoric, Either, either the ability or the incentive to draw meaningful distinctions between different things. And that, I think, is just a huge problem. 
you know, uh, David Brooks has an excellent column today about how the GOP is getting worse. Um, I don't know if I agree with everything. I don't, I don't, I don't know necessarily if I agree entirely with the picture he paints, but the stuff that he does report in the column about the trends, they're all terrible and, 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 and depressing as hell. And this isn't, and I think these are all also symptoms of what's going on on the right, where you have people on the right, unwilling or unable uh, to make, you know, important distinctions from things that to be able to say that something on a scale that something can be a problem, but not a catastrophe. You know, that uh, it would be bad if Hillary Clinton had won in 2016, but it wouldn't be akin to terrorists taking over a plane, cutting people's throats and trying to fly it into a capital to destroy the United States of America. I mean, we can make distinctions here. Um, and, and I don't know entirely, you know, I have all sorts of theories about why we got to this place, but I think, you know, just identifying the problem is is helpful because it's not just crazy populist rhetoric people believe a lot of this stuff i mean there are people who really believe that corporations are controlling their lives and you know and, I, and that used to be something i only really ever heard from the left i used to go on college campuses and kids would tell me you know you talk about all this stuff about civics and and citizenship and blah 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 but how can that have any meaning for me when com corporations control everything in my life and I, was, I would be like, take me through your day. You're like, you know, tell me when the jack booted thugs from, you know, AT&T that Dr. Johnny Fever was so concerned with, you know, tell me when, you know, the corporate cops come and tell you what to have for lunch, you know, tell me where they are, you know, forcing you to watch whatever you watch on TV or listen to whatever music you listen to. And, um, and now you hear this stuff all over the place on the right about how corporations are running our lives. Corporations are all powerful and all of this kind of thing. And obviously I'm pretty skeptical about some of the complaints about corporations, but you know, some have merit, you know, I, I, some complaints about how big tech is handling some speech issues seem utterly legitimate to me and, and well-founded. Um, but I don't feel like saying, you know, democracy is at stake is well-founded either. And I think, you know, this gets to this problem that we have um, where people have been trained to think that words are things, that words are more important than physical things, that the symbolism is more important than the reality, that constructing a narrative um, is more important than figuring out the facts. and. I think this has in part to do with just the, the, the way they teach critical thinking, what they call critical thinking in universities, but it also has to do with the way they, the way the culture has expectations, you know, from, uh, from the media, from intellectuals, from politicians is people want, you know, if, 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 if catastrophization of everything didn't work, we'd get a lot less of it, but it definitely works for whatever the purposes, uh, the catastrophizers are looking for and, you know, try to get, uh, you know, a big public following out there for a politician or a TV host or whatever by saying, Hey, you know, this is a pretty good country. It's not going down the tubes. It's got some problems that we can deal with, but we're doing better than, you know, uh, most people around the world. And, and we're doing better than 99% of the people who, who lived lives before ours. And, um, there's nothing to lose your, um, senses about and nothing, you know, I was going to use a more colorful phrase and backed off. Uh, and, um, you know, that's not what people want. People want, um, they want to be scared or they want to, you know, um, you know, they want to feel like the stakes are sufficiently high to deserve their attention and their passion. And, um, that's fine to, if, if the stakes are high and are, are that high, but like telling people, you know, we're 
one election away from the end of the world, telling people that, you know, there's this, I mean, there's this thing I saw on Twitter, Katie Porter, a congresswoman, she told, she was interviewing, uh, again, I can't, what is her name? It's, uh, Gretchen Thunberg, third, third Gretchen, Gre Greta Thunberg. That's it. Okay. I, for some reason that will not stick in my brain. Uh, Nick tells me it's Greta Thunberg. Um, I won't get into my whole riff about how turning children into experts on anything is a sign of, of civilizational unseriousness and romanticism run amok. We can do that another day, but she was testifying, of course, at this climate change thing. And, um, Katie Porter talked about how her nine-year-old kid said, mommy, you know, the world's going to catch fire and we're all going to die. And then asked Greta to talk about the emotional stress that climate change is causing in children. And here's the thing. Climate change is not causing any stress in children. It's just not. I mean, like, I mean, okay, fine. Some children who live in, in low-lying coastal areas where we might be seeing some sea level rise or some people in Central America where climate change might be related to droughts, those kids might be getting stress from climate change, but that's not my point. Kids in the United States of America, never mind kids of congresswomen in the United States right now, have zero stress from actual or emotional distress from climate change. What they have emotional distress from is people like Greta Thunberg. Um, sorry, I'm not trying to do a Carlson and mispronounce her name. I just can't keep her name in my head. Um, what they have stress from is people like Greta Thunberg and their teachers in their schools and their grade schools, in their kindergartens. They have from cartoons they have from almost every angle, they have people telling them that the world is, is coming apart at the seams and that climate change is going to kill everybody and destroy everything and make their futures bleak and terrible. That's causing emotional stress. What we're telling kids is causing emotional stress. Um, you know, and it's funny, people keep wanting to compare, uh, you know, when they say that it's an climate change is an existential crisis or, uh, an extinction level threat. Um, you know, the, the thing that you normally would compare to an extinction level threat is like an asteroid impact, right? That was the extinction level event that got rid of the dinosaurs. And now that we find out that Tyrannosaurus rexes, you know, uh, hunted in packs, um, you know, maybe we should be glad they got rid of them. But anyway, um, Imagine you imagine there was an asteroid coming to the United States or coming to the, to the planet Earth, right? And we had time to maybe figure out how to divert it or blow it up or call Bruce Willis or whatever, right? So it's not tomorrow, but it's like on its trajectory, it might hit us in a year and everyone's scrambling to figure out what to do about it. What would you, how would you talk to your nine-year-old kid? Would you tell them, you know, if you don't recycle the asteroid is going to kill you and all the panda bears? Or would you say, look, you know, we're working on it. It's scary, but we're going to fix it. Have some faith. We've got, we got great people working on this and we're going to do our best and it'll be, it'll all work out. More likely, if you're a good parent, that's what you're telling your kid. But when it comes to climate change, everyone is telling kids, freak out, freak out often, worry constantly, stress over it. And, um, I get the arguments for why they're telling you that that's, that's going to prompt better action and all blah, 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 but okay, maybe it will, maybe it won't. We have disagreements on the policy side about how to deal with climate change, but that's the thing that causes emotional distress for kids is, is not the actual reality of very incremental temperature changes over the course of a century and changing weather patterns. That, you know, if, if you're born into weird weather, you, that, that's what you think is normal. That's not causing stress for kids. What's causing stress for kids is this catastrophization of the issue nonstop, 24-7 in the culture, in our education system, and, and every place else. And um, I can't remember what I was getting into on that, so let me switch gears slightly. Um, before I was talking about how corporations run people's lives, don't really run people's lives. I'm growing exhausted. Um, listening to people talk about 
corporations and corporate taxes and corporate speech and all of these things. And there are too many different angles to, to go at here. Um, you know, this morning I listened to, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of partial to morning Joe for reasons I, I explained before. Um, you know, I, it sometimes, sometimes it could be like it when you have a loose tooth and you like to play with it because it's, it, it hurts, but in a sort of a fun and distracting way. That's sort of my attitude towards morning Joe. But, um, they had a conversation there this morning about, um, the infrastructure bill and, um, corporate taxes and, and, and corporations paying their fair share and yada, yada, yada. And it made me want to throw my coffee mug through the window. Um, when Donnie Deutsch is the voice of sweet reason, um, in a debate about economic policy, you, you know, you got to go back to the well and figure out a better way to talk about this stuff. And all Deutsch said, which he kept apologizing for, kept saying, I know people are going to hate me and they're not going to let me on the show and they're going to send me to Fox. And I'm sure he thought it was very funny. Um, but he just said, look, I'm a business guy. And at the end of the day, you got to stop spending money you don't have. And I know that makes a lot of people around here mad. And it did. And a bunch of people just pushed back. And, um, maybe because I have the podcast we did with, uh, Brian Riedel earlier this week in my mind, I knew the stuff that they were saying about like the corporate taxes wasn't true. Um, and moreover, they were all acting as if at this moment we have our fiscal houses in order and spending, you know, that the first spending we do right now will be the first borrowing we're doing rather than the fact that we're coming into a movie that has been playing for, you know, nearly 30 years and all of the money they're talking about spending is, is borrowed money. And, um, anyway, so back to corporation, uh, everyone says, Oh, the infrastructure stuff can be paid for only if corporations pay their fair share. And, um, I don't know, you know, I mean, I, I know what they mean by fair share. I think I do. But the, the problem is, is first of all, and I know I'm a broken record on this, but corporations aren't people, which is usually something that you hear the left say, because they don't like the idea of corporate personhood as a legal matter. And I don't really understand why, because if you got rid of corporate personhood, it would be, it may be bad for ExxonMobil, but it would also be bad for NARAL and Planned Parenthood and all sorts of other things too. Um, but the, you know, my basic view is, is that the corporate income tax should be zero or, you know, maybe 3%, 5%, something small enough that the costs and risks of trying to avoid it aren't worth the effort. And at the same time, I think we should get rid of all this sort of spending through the tax code stuff. Um, you know, maybe, maybe there's stuff that we should keep on the books for depreciation because that helps with long-term planning and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, the reason why I can't stand this corporations have to pay their fair share talk is that, you know, like Gene Hackman says in Unforgiven, fair ain't got nothing to deserve to do with it. Um, or I guess deserve, but same thing. Um, corporations aren't people. And it's not like corporations have this big pile of cash that they're hoarding like Scrooge McDuck that um, um, is separate and apart from all the other things that they're doing. And when we tax that, we don't affect any other decisions in, um, in corporate behavior. It's just, it's, it's bizarre to me. And every study I've seen says that that money, the, the money that corporations pay in taxes comes from somewhere, you know, it comes from wages, either wages don't go up as they, as they might, or they stay where they are longer, or, uh, they don't get paid in the form of, they don't hire more people or that money comes out of investing in new projects, which also has effect on wages. Or, you know, if you, if you really think, you know, dividends and, and, and stock buybacks are terrible, that money comes out of that too. And, you know, maybe you think that's a wonderful thing, but 
My point is the money still comes from somewhere. It comes from people, not the corporation. There isn't, you know, you know, the Ramjack Corporation isn't in a Barca lounger drinking a beer and Uncle Sam's going into his pocket. It's coming from the money that comes from somewhere. Oh, or, or it comes from higher prices. And um, the way you want to get tax revenue, I mean, I, I don't love the income tax, the personal income tax either, but at least that is aimed squarely at the people that you can talk about fair share or greedy or any of that kind of stuff because they're people. And, um, um, and it seems to me that you would want, if we actually believe economic growth is good, if we believe more employment is good, if we believe rising wages are good, um, taxing corporations is just a really dumb thing to do. Our taxing corporations beyond a certain minimal level is a really dumb thing to do. And ascribing to the corporations human emotions while getting really mad about them being called people is really weird to me. Corporations aren't greedy any more than, you know, my uh, grill is moody because it's an inanimate object. Corporations do not, do not exist as, as sentient beings and never mind ones with a full range of emotions. And so when you say they're, they're being greedy, you're, you're anthropomorphizing at the same time you're complaining about people who anthropomorphize corporations. Um, you know, and it's, I, I, I honestly don't understand why when I make this argument and I'm hardly alone in making this argument, um, people think that I am championing greed. Well, I'm not. I mean, I, I, I think if you got rid of corporate income taxes, that money would go to other places that would be taxable, but those corporations would also be more competitive with foreign corporations and, um, they would grow faster and be a net benefit for the economy and the society. And I, I just, honestly, I, you know, this idea that the sinister evil people are the ones who make these kinds of arguments. I just, I find, find baffling. Um, oh, and so, yeah, the other thing they were talking about was how the Republican counter offer to Biden on infrastructure, which was something, you know, go look it up yourself, but you know, it's something like 500 and something billion dollars on infrastructure. Um, they're all saying, well, that's just, you know, that's low ball. That's, you know, that's, it's, you know, there are people out there basically saying that that's not a serious counteroffer because Biden is proposing 2 trillion. You know, by that logic, Biden should have offered a $20 trillion infrastructure plan. And then a 2 trillion counteroffer from the Republicans would be considered a low ball, unserious thing too. I mean, again, this is another example of not being able to make distinctions between differences in degree and differences in kind. Um, and the, the, the infrastructure, but it's, what's, what's, you know, one of these things I've been pounding my spoon on my high chair about for quite a while now is that the, you know, the Republican party has basically become a big spending party too. It may want to spend less than Democrats because they need to save some, uh, headroom for tax cuts, but they're both big deficit parties. They both have been for a while. Trump made it official or the people who sort of gave a free ride to Trump made it official. They just don't care about debt and deficit. They just don't. And in that climate, you're always going to get outbid by the guy who wants to spend more. You know, if nobody cares about spending, then the one who spends two or three times more than, than the other side is always going to win. Um, and what's remarkable that shows you how much this drift is taking place. Uh, the Republican proposal on infrastructure is like a hundred billion dollars more than what the Democrats proposed for infrastructure last year. So now the Republican party's official position on infrastructure is, and I know this is a very crude way of describing this, but is 20% more liberal, more progressive, more status, more big spending, whatever label you want to put on it, than where the Democrat 
house was a year ago. That's that's how much the drift is claiming both parties in all of this. And I find it deeply, deeply uh, depressing. What else to talk about? Oh, uh, let's go back. You know, I, I guess, I mean, if you listen to the Dispatch podcast from earlier this week, uh, you know where I basically come down, or if you read the column, where I, come down. I think that Derek Chauvin definitely was guilty of manslaughter uh definitely was guilty of of murder three i personally i say, think that murder two was completely appropriate um or defensible um but i also there are also people i respect who think that the 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 top charge of murder two wasn't uh justified and i think reasonable people can differ about that the idea that if he only got murder three or only got manslaughter it, people would be justified to riot and burn things, I think is ludicrous and appalling. But um, uh, I'm glad for the verdict the way it came down. And so there are two points I want to make about this. One is related to the stuff I was talking about before, before my coffee kicked in. Um, the shooting in Columbus, to be able to, to compare it to the... George Floyd death is absurd unless you are incapable of making anything, anything like a serious distinction between different sets of facts. And all you care about is the narrative maintenance of perpetuating a certain theme. And so you have, um, superficially you have two, you have white cops in Minneapolis in Columbus, Ohio, killing a black person. And if you're Ibrahim X. Kendi or virtually almost every host of every, you know, of, uh, on, on MSNBC and wide swaths of CNN, that's all you need to know, right? Because it's in, in lazy journalism, three examples equals a trend. And it doesn't really matter if, you know, the third example or even the second example for some people doesn't really jibe with the first example. It, it, the more examples you give, the less uh, precise each example has to be. And so, yes, we've had lots, tragically, we've had lots of examples of cops killing black people. Um, but Dante Wright and, and I don't remember this girl's name in, in Columbus, in the Columbus shooting and Derek Chauvin, they are all superficially the same thing. If you think all you need to know is that a white cop killed a black person, but that's not how our legal system works. That's not how reason and logic work. Um, and that's not how morality works. Um, you are minimizing the death of George Floyd. If you think the Columbus shooting is no different because the, the Columbus, um, Sorry, Steve's got to stop texting me. The, the Columbus shooting, you have a cop, which we've seen on video from several angles. Um, you have a cop getting out of a car, responding to a 911 call. Um, and there is all sorts of mayhem going on. And in seconds of upon arrival, he sees someone with a knife poised to plunge it into somebody else. And he uses deadly force. Now, you, make, you can disagree with his decision I, I i honestly i i'm hard pressed to second guess it but okay you can disagree with it um spare me the stuff you see on twitter about shooting the knife out of her hand or you know shooting to wound i mean forget all that stuff but whatever you can have i, I suppose serious people can have disagreements about whether this is right or not but as a moral fact what the cop and columbus did has to be different in your mind than what Derek Chauvin did to George Floyd. George Floyd was handcuffed on the ground, face down, and Chauvin put his knee on the guy's neck for over nine minutes. And if I'm not mistaken, four minutes of that, he was unconscious. Floyd didn't have a knife in his hand. He wasn't a threat to the cop. He wasn't a threat to anybody else. Or even if you buy his defense that it was possible he could be a threat, which I don't buy, 
we can make a distinction between the potential threat of a face-down George Floyd in handcuffs versus the actual threat of a woman, a, you know, pulling, cocking her arm back to stab somebody. They're just different things. Similarly, you know, look, Dante Wright, we can have an argument about, you know, what to think about that whole thing. And, and I think it would be, there are re, there are reasonable police reforms that we should think about, about how to avoid some of these kinds of situations. But again, jumping back in a police car, uh, I mean, jumping back in your own car, trying to escape arrest is different from what George Floyd did. It's also different what was going on in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, what the police officer did, what the female police officer did, and she's been charged with manslaughter um, in accidentally using a, her gun rather than uh, the taser, which I believe is, I believe her story on that because the way the scene unfolds, she actually tells her colleagues to back off because she's going to tase him and then she shoots. And then the first thing she says is like, oh my God, I shot him. Um, that's not something you do if you planned on killing the guy or intended to kill the guy. And it's certainly not something you do if you, if it's open season on black people, but you know, it negligent homicide is still a real charge against her as far as I'm concerned. Um, because it was such a terrible, terrible mistake to make, but these are important moral distinctions. And if you reduce them all to the color of people's skin, or the fact that they're all perpetrated by cops, um, you're actually, you know, you're, you know, you're denigrating, you know, some victim, you're, 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 you're denigrating some victims, you know, uh, the injustice that was done to some people over other people. I mean, like, you know, he, this wasn't, you know, George Floyd posed no threat to anybody. And, um, and, saying that what the cop did in Columbus when he shot a girl who was about to kill somebody else or looked like she was about to kill somebody else to equate the two is to basically say that Derek Chauvin's defense was correct, right? I mean, because you're basically just saying that, you know, uh, there's no difference between the two cases and there is, and, and it's this kind of inability to make distinctions between things that, that, um, I think, is poisoning people's minds in all sorts of ways. And so this, the other thing I just wanted to say about it, I think people know at this point, I am not some Adrian Vermeule neo-monarchist guy, right? Um, I, I'm a, you know, two thumbs for classical liberalism guy. Uh, I uh, passionately believe in that, that the rules of the liberal order um, are noble and moral and good. And when people say, well, they're just neutral rules and therefore, you know, procedural liberalism has no moral content. I think that they're wrong. Uh, giving people their day in court is a moral good. Giving people the right to, uh, speak their conscience, to vote with their feet, to, uh, associate with people that they want to associate with, um, giving people due process. These are moral goods in and of themselves. They're also prudentially wise, but that's, that's fine too. But they're also like legitimately the more moral positions than the system of monarchy or, or whatever the nationalists want these days suggest. Um, rules that apply to everyone equally. We're all equal before the, you know, the, the, a court of law and the eyes of God, these are morally superior positions. So I just want to be clear about that. That said, this whole thing does kind of, it did kind of give me a sense in which you can appreciate the monarchist position better. Um, uh, because, you know, it's funny where it kind of occurred to me was I, uh, was in my car, um, heading to meet some people when the verdict came out and I was going around the dial, listening to people. And I heard, um, a bit of the five, which I try not to listen to in part because, um, I like some of the people on the five. And if I watch the show too much, I will, um, say things I don't want to say. Um, but, uh, Greg Gutfeld, who I've known for years, um, he was making 
an interesting argument. He was saying, look, I think Chauvin did it. I think he was guilty. Um, I'm glad they convicted him. And then he said, but you know, given the state of the country and given that what was about to happen, if they, if he got off, um, I think even if it wasn't clear that he was guilty, it was probably good that he got convicted. And then because it wouldn't be weird enough for, uh, glow in the dark three-headed chicken to walk through my kitchen and burst into flames um something really weird happened uh janine pirro made cogent and sensible arguments um about the justice system and the legal system and about how politics can't corrupt the legal system and that you know that stuff has to be kept out of the courtroom and it was a weird thing because i actually agreed with both of them and i can't remember the last time I've listened to Janine Pirro make a cogent, sober argument about anything. Um, and, but what I agree about is this, this, this monarchist thing, which is that, and I, I think I've talked about this before. If you, in Julian Benda's treason of the clerks, which is one of my favorite books, um, uh, in English, it's treason of the intellectuals, but clerk is a better word. Um, he points out that, you know, in, in the past under, in monarchies, um, if something was an affront to the nation's interests or honor, it fell entirely to the king to decide what to do about it. And usually the things that, you know, were at stake were like territorial interests or trade interests or these kinds of things. And the king could basically do a cost benefit analysis, um, about what it was worth making a stink about and what it wasn't. And Benda makes the point that with the rise of sort of the democratic age, the populist age, the nationalist age, um, even monarchs were uh, subordinated to the uh, to public opinion. All of a sudden, what the mobs wanted helped or often dictated um, the sovereign's response. And... Um, that is actually, you know, that's like a big theme in, in Roman history is, you know, how, you know, Caesar, for example, you know, wanted to, um, stay, I should say Julius Caesar, uh, wanted to stay right with the people. And, you know, uh, there's all the, you know, bread and circus stuff and all that. If you have the people on the side, you can put pressure on the Senate and yada, yada, yada. So what Benda was describing, you know, was new in recent European history, but not new in history. and um and one of the things that a king or a Caesar or an emperor or a pasha or a sultan, you know, whatever, the labels don't really matter. One of the things that they w- could do in times like that was that if there was a figure who was, um, that the, that the people, the populi, um, hated, he didn't have to, he didn't care whether or not they could prove his guilt or innocence in a court of law through rigorous interrogation of the evidence. Um, he could make the decision on his own, what is best for the people, what is best for me, what is best for the national interest and hang the guy or vice versa. Let the guy off the hook. If the people went the other way, I mean, that was the whole thumbs up, thumbs down thing in the, in the arena too. And you, what, what Greg was sort of stumbling at was this sort of point, which is that there are times when the liberal order and the national will, and maybe even the national interest are intention. And I am not advocating, I, you know, I, I, let's put it this way. I hope the jury wasn't intimidated by the crowd. I think that a lot of the, the, you know, the right-wing populist types, I'm not going to call them conservatives who are pounding the table about all of this are exaggerating it precisely because they like the idea of heightening racial tensions and they like saying that, you know, BLM, BLM is the, is a terrorist organization and all that kind of stuff. Um, I hope that they're wrong, but I think a lot of reasonable people, whatever you think about the facts of the case felt pretty relieved when the verdict came out because it was uh, if it had gone another way, if it had been a hung jury or if they just ruled not guilty, which was always unlikely, 
um, you would have seen a lot more people hurt. Racial relations would have been even more messed up. I don't think Biden would do a great job of dealing with it. Uh, you would get a counter reaction from people on the right. That would be an overreaction as well. It would be a hot mess. And you could see how, you know, in an earlier time, you know, elites who didn't really care about process or the rule of law or liberalism or any of that kind of stuff, they would uh, make the call about guilt or innocence regardless of the facts, but more for the social peace or social harmony or the greater good or whatever. And I get that argument. I mean, the good czar is better, is the best form of government, as my people used to say. The only problem is you can't, is that the good czar doesn't, A, doesn't really exist, and B, um, even if he does, the next generation, the, the good czar's kid is going to suck. Um, so I'm not, I'm not endorsing it, but you can see the temptation of it. And, um, you could see how, like, if you were on that jury, some of that was in the back of your mind, um, that might've tipped you in favor of the murder two thing instead of just going for murder three and, and the manslaughter thing. And I think there's something interesting in the way people are talking about this. One of the reasons why we have jury trials where we have trials by your where a jury of your peers is to in fact take into account considerations um about the community about about norms and expectations about you know reasonable judgments and so it's funny there is a tension in the law it's in the tradition itself between um the law where the judge says these are the only reasons why you can these are the only reasons and factors you can take into consideration and the fact that we have juries in the first place because if if it was purely just going by facts and consideration why not just have only judge you know judge trials why have jury trials the whole point is is that they're supposed to bring in some x factor that weighs other variables differently or it looks at the variables through eyes that are different than hyper legalistic technical eyes but are more like the common man's eyes and so you could see how like a jury might take some of these kinds of considerations into account and i don't think that means they were intimidated necessarily i just think it means that if if it happened at all i have no idea um that they were employing you know close to the ground common sense wisdom about the situation and if you're the jury and you think it's obvious that he committed manslaughter which i do um, and you think it's a pretty easy call to say murder two, um, I mean, I say murder three, you know, maybe you're on the bubble. You say, well, let's not, why not? We, why don't we just go for all three? Um, but anyway, it just, it occurs to me that like this kind of thinking about how the, the, um, the greater good, uh, for the society, um, and I do mean greater good, and I should back up on this. I'm not just saying that it's for the greater good because if he was found not guilty, they would have burnt down a bunch of businesses and blown up a bunch of cars or whatever, if if that's in fact what they would do. I mean, I think a lot of that would have happened. Um, I mean, it's also for the greater good because it, it sends a signal that the criminal justice system can be trusted. It sends a signal that the process worked. Um, and uh, And that's good, too. Um, and that's for the greater good too. Um, but anyway, I could see how this was, um, like you could make a call that this was, you know, even if you weren't sure about this, about is guilt on every count, it's better for the country. It's better morally. It's better all in all, um, that you go that way. And, um, I forgot what, when I, before I interrupted myself, how I was going to finish that thought, but I'll, so I'll, I'll leave it there. Um, and, um, now I got to figure out what to write a GFO about after I've, I've gone through all of this stuff. Uh, um, if you have any ideas, well, you can't send me any ideas cause it'll be too late, but in general, if you have ideas for what you would like to see in a G file or in a podcast, uh, you should always send them my way. And as I mentioned before, the Brian Riedel podcast was great. We've gotten a lot of pop feedback about it very depressing um extremely depressing um so if you're in a really good mood and you want to to 
to change and you're getting bored with being in a good mood, you should definitely listen to it. Um, and, and in the second podcast of the week, we had Tom Jocelyn on, which I've been meaning to do for a while. And I, as I said, I was kind of embarrassed that we hadn't had him on sooner. I really admire and respect Tom a lot. I'm delighted that he's writing for us. And, um, I thought it was a fun, interesting conversation. He really wanted to do more, um, Henry Kissinger bashing. And, um, I wish I had prepped more for the Henry Kissinger bashing, but, uh, it was probably, it's, it's worth the price of admission just to hear him talk about how, um, Henry Kissinger is the Bernie Madoff of foreign policy. And, um, other than that, uh, I feel like there's something else I'm supposed to be telling you. Um, but I can't figure out what it is. So you should just fill in the blank and I will let you know how um, Zoe's doing uh, next week. And with that, I'll see you next time. Yeah.